Today on Focal Point with Pastor Mike Fabares. He removes our guilt. Think about this. He provides direction. I know what I'm supposed to do for the rest of my life. I have absolute guaranteed security that the promises that he's made to me are going to be held true. And between here and there, I'm going to be able to have all the strength I need to face every challenge, including death itself. All of that really reflected in the way that God, the Father, named his Christ. What do you call God? Abba? Father? Mighty One? And what names do you use for Jesus? Savior? Lord? Well, throughout the Bible, there are many names given for us to choose from. And in this special Christmas edition of Focal Point, Pastor Mike Fabares focuses our attention on a few of the names God gave to his Christ. These names weren't random or flippant, and today we'll learn what makes them especially significant and important. Pastor Mike originally preached this message last year on Christmas Eve. Let's get started. Well, Merry Christmas, everyone. It is great to see you here on December 24th. And uh, we are again back on the 24th to celebrate the birth of a child 2,000 years ago, a little baby in Bethlehem. And if you think about the birth of Christ 2,000 years ago, God comes on the scene and says repeatedly, right, his name shall be called. And, And what the reason I put an ellipsis here behind this, the name shall be called, is because it's not just one name. You realize that if you look through the Bible, there are many names that God gave the Messiah, the Christ, the Messiah. We could take a lot of time to go through every name that God assigns the Christ. But I just want to look at a few tonight and really only one theme. And the theme I'd like us to think about on this little devotional thought before you celebrate Christmas this year is the theme that was provided to us by God's spirit through a man named Simeon on the Temple Mount. He was an old man, and he was waiting for the Messiah. And it says about Simeon here in Luke chapter 2 that he lived there in Jerusalem, and he was one named after one of the tribe's leaders of Israel, and he was a righteous man and a devout man. And he was waiting for the Messiah. But instead of using the name Messiah, he chose a descriptor regarding who Christ was going to be. And if you know the passage, you know what's coming next. He calls the, the coming Messiah. He says, I was waiting for the consolation of Israel. The consolation of you. I want you to think about that word. And just allow that to be our theme tonight, to think about what Christ was. He was to be a consolation. Do you know that word? A comfort. He was to be a encouragement. He was supposed to be someone that felt like help to us, right? Because he would be help to us. He would be help to, to us in Israel. Simeon, of course, an Israelite said. And so he takes up this baby in his arms from Mary, and he, he says, Good things to God. He worships God. He blesses God. And he says, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace. I kept waiting for the Messiah. And now I'm holding in my arms this child who is to be the Christ. My eyes have seen your salvation, he says. And you've prepared this child publicly here in the presence of all the peoples. And he says, he's going to be a light for revelation to the Gentiles. Even the Gentiles are going to learn about your plan for this world through the Messiah And, of course, it's going to be for glory to your people Israel. And they're going to glory because this Messiah that is going to bless the whole earth is coming through the descendant of Abraham. So this is a great concept, a great concept of the Christ being a consolation. 
Not a name, not a proper name, but just a description of who he would be. And I'm thinking, okay, how many names line up under that concept? Well, plenty, but let me just give you a few tonight. Thinking and asking the question, how did the coming of Christ 2,000 years ago provide a comfort, a help, an encouragement, a support? How did it hearten people when Christ came? How did that work? Well, it's tied up in several names of Christ. I just want to look at four categories here as we think this through. Out of all the names of Christ, which ones provide what Simeon, by God's Spirit, said he would provide? Comfort, help, consolation, encouragement. How does that work? Well, let's start with the Annunciation. When the angel comes to Mary and says, hey, you're going to have a child, the angel gives a clear description of the name. You're going to conceive in your womb, you're going to bear a son, and you shall call his name. And the first name that we get that's repeatedly used and the most frequently used, he says, we're going to call him Jesus. Now, when you see the word Jesus, you got to remember we're reading an English translation of a Greek New Testament. New Testament was written in Koine Greek or Common Greek in the first century. When you read the word Jesus in English, it's translating Jesus, which sounds a lot like Spanish, but it's Greek, Jesus, which is the word that is used in the New Testament that if you were reading the Greek New Testament, that's the word you would see. But if you read that word, you'd go, oh, I know what that word is, because if I happen to be reading a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, every time you ran into the word Yeshua, you would see the word Jesus. So in their minds, clear. And Yeshua is the word translated into English in our Bibles, Joshua. So you need to, in your mind, think what the angel came and showed up in the first century and said, hey, the Messiah is coming, and guess what? You don't get to pick the name. God the Father picked the name, and here's one of the names he's going to give that'll be the most commonly used name, and that name is Joshua. It's not, a wrong, not wrong to think that way. Matter of fact, you could think that way, and tonight I want you to think that way because they thought that way, and when they heard the word Yeshua or they heard the word Jesus, what they were thinking was this guy in the Old Testament who led the armies into the promised land. You ever use the phrase divide and conquer? That comes from the military strategy of Joshua, the captain of the armies. He was the understudy of Moses who after wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, the baton goes from Moses to Joshua. Joshua divides the promised land by hitting the capital of it, the biggest city in Jericho. Of course, God shows that he's in charge and the power behind it all, but he's carrying the armament. He is the head. He's the general. And then he starts a southern campaign and a northern campaign. He divides and conquers the land. He's the guy who's leading the armies of God to vanquish our enemies. So when you read in the scripture, whether it's Matthew chapter one or Luke chapter one, and here is this reminder of Christ Messiah coming into the world, and we're going to give him a proper name that he's going to be called. Whenever you're going to have a conversation with him, the average name you're going to hear is you're going to hear that he's named Joshua, which is hearkening back in your mind to a military campaigner. And, and here's the description of what the angel said to Joseph. You're going to call his name, just like I told Mary. This kid's going to be called Jesus because he's going to deliver. He's going to fight. He's going to fight and vanquish foes. He's going to save his people, not from the Canaanites and not even from what they might expect, the Romans, and many of them did expect him to fight against the Romans. No, he's going to save a whole different category, whole different mindset. He's going to save people from their sins. It's going to take a fight. It's going to take work. But you've got a foe, and that foe needs to be vanquished, and that foe is your sins. 
And if you think about it in scripture, the Bible speaks of the idea of your sins being your enemy. Matter of fact, they are, as Colossians says, hostile toward you. These laws that you don't meet, even reflecting your conscience that you know is a reflection of God's moral law. They're kinds of things that if you give enough thought to it, they start to assail you. They start to make you feel bad and they will stick in your mind and they're described in our parlance with words like guilt and shame. As David put it, thinking about his own sin that was overwhelming him, he wrote, for I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. And of course, that was a song that was written for Israel in reflection of his own failures because it was something everyone could identify with. Because everyone has felt that if they've been honest and reflective enough to consider the fact that they fall short of what they should do. Well, all I have to do is talk about sin and make you think about your own sin for a little bit for you to say, oh, wait, wait, wait. Your Bible says if you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. There you go. That's why I believe in in Christianity. Because if I just confess my sins, it all goes away. And I'd say that's absolutely true. That's what, the, that's what the Bible says. But don't rush over the words. And when it says here, if we confess our sins, which number one means you need to look at the problem and see it, then he is faithful, he'll do it every time, and just to forgive your sins. How does he justly forgive your sins? How does he justly wipe those out? How does he do that? By stepping between you and God and saying, God, I'll take on the punishment for their sin. You can aim your just anger at me. You can count my human suffering and my human anguish as the full payment for them. Matter of fact, that's why Jesus used the word tetelestai when he died. Tetelestai in Koine Greek means paid in full. Jesus is the one who removes guilt. He's the one who removes shame. He's the one who removes all of the transgressions that stand hostile against us. To put it in the words of the Old Testament, though your sins be as scarlet, they'll be white as snow. Though your sins are red like crimson, they'll be made white like wool. That happens instantaneously because Christ 2,000 years ago came and died and made peace between you and God because the sins have been vanquished. And if you think that through, that's a huge Huge consolation and comfort to those of us that bring guilt and feel bad for their sins. Pin it to the cross by faith, confessing it, and trusting in the Joshua who fought the battle for us. Simeon there called him a light of revelation for the Gentiles. Let me give you a second thing to think about here this Christmas. I want you to think about the concept of Christ coming and being light. That's one of the titles Christ takes upon himself. It's one of the ways the gospel writer describes him in John John uses this word 24 times in his gospel. In just one one book, in 21 chapters, he uses 24 times. And it's the concept of Christ coming in and illuminating, bringing light. The true light, he's called, which gives light to everyone who's coming into the world. When the word became flesh and dwelt among us, John chapter 1 says, he was light. He was the light of men. He gave light to people. Well, what's that all about? Well, Jesus talked about it in John chapter 8, verse 12. He actually said, I am the light of the world. That's what I am, the light of the world. I bring light where there's darkness. And then he describes it this way. If you get in line behind me, if you follow me, then you won't walk in darkness. Because in the dark, you don't know where to go. You can't see things. You can't see obstacles and walk around them. But I'm the light if you follow me. Follow what I say. Follow what I teach. Follow what I affirm. 
follow what I'm going to instruct my apostles to teach you, follow that. Do what they say, do what I've said through them, do what I'm affirming in the Old Testament as to what God has said in the law. Do that, follow me. You won't walk in darkness. You'll know where to go. He sent his son to be the light and the standard and the representation of what human life should be. And he comes on the scene and he says, here's what you are to do. As a matter of fact, you should walk in this light. If we say I have fellowship with him and yet we walk in darkness, we lie, we do not practice the truth. Darkness means you don't follow what he says. You take your own path. You do what most of the people in our society do, and that is they just figure it out by the visceral feelings they have, by whatever they think is right, whatever popular culture says is good, whatever they affirm and applaud. I'll just do all of that. But the Bible is very clear. Light has come into the world. Christ is the embodiment of human life. This is what it should be. This is human flourishing to live like Christ, to do what he taught. Whoever abides in him, if you say you've had your sins forgiven, if he's your Joshua, then you ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. You ought to adopt the standards, the values, the ethics that he was, was teaching. He's that light. He's that path. This is the fulfillment of humanity is to do what he says. It's not intuition. It's not culture. It's not surveys. It's not popularity. It's you saying, if God has said it and embodied it in Christ, that's what we do. We follow Christ. He comes on the scene and says, I'm the light, follow me. I'm like a shepherd and you're like sheep and do as I say. People don't want to be sheep. I get that. They want to be the master of their own fate, the captain of their own soul. But the reality is it will never lead to human flourishing because he is the good guide. He is the good shepherd. He is the true light. And if you want to live life the way God designed life to be lived, which is the best way to live life, well, then you ought to do that. You ought to hear his voice. You ought to tune into what he says and you ought to follow him. And when you do that, you'll recognize every other path is darkness. And those paths, the tempter is going to come and say, come and do this this way. Did God really say that? That's how it started in the garden. Did God really say that? You, you should do different. It's good for your eyes. Good for you to have food. Here, just do what you want. Don't, don't worry about what God wants. Well, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And in the end, you'll write the book of Ecclesiastes and say, I had everything that I wanted, but nothing that I really needed, and it never really fulfilled me. Human flourishing, really if you want to speak in those terms, is about looking at the light that has come into the world and saying, my goal in life between now and the time I die is to be more like Christ. I want to reflect what he reflected. I want to teach what he taught. I want to say what he said. I want to live with the values that he had. He came to bring life, real life, fulfilled life, abundant life, true life. Human flourishing is found in Christ's Light, the light of the world. 700 years before Christ in that passage, four titles. One of them is Wonderful Counselor. He gives direction. He gives light. He gives guidance. He tells his sheep which way to go. And the good news is you'll look back on it and say, that was wonderful. That was good. That was flourishing. That was abundant life. A lot of people telling you what to do, but they're not wonderful counselors. Christ came. And one of the things that the Bible says his name shall be called is Wonderful Counselor, the light of the world. There's some great consolation in that, great comfort in that. Just like there was in this word when it says in a very familiar passage that the shepherds were told there's a Savior being born in the city of David, and he is Christ. Here's the third thing, the Lord. Three of four. Here's the third title that he's given, Lord. You don't often think about that because we're so used to the word. It's used 8,000 times in the Old Testament, hundreds of times in the New Testament. Here is a word that we're so used to, we don't stop to think about what it means. To be Lord means you're, it's a hierarchical term. It's a term that shows a pecking order. It's like the old, uh, you know, kind of the savage rules of the jungle. There's a king of the jungle because he's stronger and mightier and has more power and veracity than any other creature. So he's in charge. 
Jesus, when he died and rose from the dead, called his disciples together at the end of Matthew. And he said, listen, guys, all authority. How much? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Only one Lord, the triune God. And the second person of the God says, I have all authority. Well, how do I know that's true? Well, Christ's resurrected life proves stuff that he has all authority. And in our minds, we ought to have this confidence that there's a guarantee in this oath that he's given, in the authority that he has, God, by two unchangeable things, a promise and an oath, and a third thing is he can't even lie because he's the truth, helps us, I know this is a wordy passage, but follow it, for us, if we fled to him and we've said, God, be our Joshua, be our light, if we've said that, well then, hey, we can have great encouragement, strong encouragement to hold fast, to hang on to without wavering because I'm not doubting it because there's no one greater than God and God has made a promise. All authority has been given to him. Man, that's, that's assuring. We can set our hope on that promise without wavering. And you know, a lot of people out there with fear and anxiety and they are worried about all kinds of things. They're trusting in this and they're hoping it pays off. If we trust in Christ, here's the thing. We have absolute assurance, right? We have, as it says in this next line, a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. You want encouragement, it'd be great for you to live with that. It'd be great for you to live with absolute guilt-free, I'm done, my sin has been paid for. I have a pattern, I know what to do between now and the end of my life. And I know at the end of my life, as Paul put it, I've entrusted myself to God and I know the one I've entrusted my life to and he's faithful because he has all authority. There's assurance in that, there's hope in that, there's, there's resolve, there's security in that. And a lot of people today don't have any of that, it's a consolation. We're sons and daughters of one who has all power and I can rest assured. I can absolutely live as a secure person. You want consolation, that's a good way to put it. Briefly now, let me give you a fourth one. Matthew chapter 1, verses 22 and 23 speaks about a fulfillment of a promise in Isaiah. And it says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, Isaiah 7:14, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. You want to wrap this all up with one last title that helps us understand what a consolation and comfort and encouragement it is to relate to that child 2,000 years ago that was born in Bethlehem? Well, then you have to understand this word, Emmanuel. Emmanuel is a Greek transliteration of a Hebrew word that sounds the same, Emmanuel. And Emmanuel literally means, as Matthew goes on to explain, God with us. Literally, it means with us is Elohim. With us is El, God is the one who has all authority and power, and he's not only making promises we can bank on, but he promises to be with us. Now, that's weird because Jesus was with us, and then he went away. But he said, when I go away, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. Matter of fact, after he said all authority has been given to me, and then he gives them light of what to do for the rest of their lives, make disciples, he then says, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. How does that work? He goes to be enthroned at the right hand of the Father. Well, here's how it works. The third person of the Godhead now is dispatched by the Son and the Father to come and live among his people in a way that he wasn't living among the people before. Matter of fact, he's not just with his people. He's now in each individual person. He's so intimately related to them. The Spirit of God is in them, and that becomes the hope of what we have to stand firm in any situation because Christ is in us. He's with us to the end of the age. That's given a kind of courage and a kind of strength to Christians throughout the generation, starting with the first generation. People that had Christ in them, in the person of the Godhead, the, the Spirit of God, they were able to face situations that were absolutely unthinkably hard, challenges, like being thrown to the lions by the Romans, and be able to die with a kind of dignity and assurance and fearlessness that's just almost unthinkable. 
that non-Christians just don't have because Christ stands with them. And I know this is weird to the outsiders, an esoteric spiritual connection with the God of the universe that dwells in me, that allows me to look at the future completely different. Now, I doubt any of you are going to be thrown to some execution by the government for being a Christian this week, but you've got plenty of things that Satan's going to throw at you. Our culture is going to throw at you. You might lose your job. You might have cancer. You might have financial collapse. You might have relational problems. And you're going to see a, a, a set of challenges as it's put in Hebrews 12. There's going to be a race set before you. And what you're going to need is perseverance to run that race. Well, here's the promise of Christ. I will be with you to the end of the age. It's consolation the world doesn't have. And if they're not celebrating Christmas with an intimate relationship with the child of Bethlehem, if they don't have that, they don't, they don't have these things. They don't have any of the benefits. But for us, he's so much more. In particular, these four concepts, he removes our guilt. Think about this. He provides direction. I know what I'm supposed to do for the rest of my life. I have absolute guaranteed security that the promises that he's made to me are going to be held true. And between here and there, I'm going to be able to have all the strength I need to face every challenge, including death itself. All of that really reflected in the way that God, the Father, named his Christ. And I hope this Christmas it becomes a devotional and fueling, encouraging, energizing act of worship for you as you remember the Christ that we celebrate this Christmas. You're listening to Focal Point and a special Christmas Eve message from pastor, author, and teacher, Mike Fabares. He has titled today's message, God Named His Christ. Now you can listen to this message and others from his Christmas series online when you visit focalpointradio.org. Well, every Christmas, families decorate their homes with figures of Mary, Joseph, and the baby Jesus. But no nativity set is truly complete without the star of Bethlehem hanging above the manger. Yeah, you know, it is interesting that Luke doesn't even mention the star in his account of Christ's birth. Right? Matthew is the gospel that tells us of magi being led by a star that led them to Jesus, right? People wonder, like, well, what prompted these magi to search for Jesus? I mean, did news of the shepherd reach that distant land? Was it Daniel's prophecies when he was there in exile? Was it angels that appeared to them or instruct them? I mean, how did this happen? Well, we don't know. We don't have the precise details in the scripture, but we do know that the Magi left their country and in the east, there in Mesopotamia, and that star, they followed it all the way to find the one who was born the king of the Jews, as Matthew 2 says. So, I don't know, the idea of that star leading, right? I don't want to make a big stretch here, but I, I, I'm going to say focal point, right? We want to see some commonality with that star in Bethlehem. We'd like to guide people just like that star did and point them to Christ. That's the goal. We want men and women to follow Christ, and we want them to follow Christ through this program. Every day, Focal Point airs on hundreds of radio stations, thousands of people listening on our website and our mobile app. We, we're just grateful that they're hearing God's word, the centerpiece of every program that we broadcast. And the goal is to point them to the truth of Christ. This ministry wouldn't be possible without the help of friends and visionaries like you who want to see this continue. We really rely on these gifts, especially during Christmas, to fund the work that God's called us to do to explore and proclaim the depths of Scripture, as we often say. We want to do that on the radio. We want to do that online. We'd like to do that in print. So if you want to see Focal Point continue its mission to be that beacon of hope and that truth across this country and even around the world, then contact us today with that special year-end gift, and together we'll keep pointing people to Christ. Thank you so much for your support. Donate online at focalpointradio.org. You can also call us at 888 888- 
320-520-5885. And to show our gratitude for your gift today, we'd like to send you a helpful book titled The Essential Scriptures, A Handbook of the Biblical Texts for Key Doctrines by author Ken D. Zuber. Ask for the essential scriptures when you make your Christmas gift to Focal Point today by calling 888-320-5885 or by giving online at focalpointradio.org. If you prefer sending your donation by mail, write to Focal Point, Post Office Box 2850, Laguna Hills, California, 92654. By the way, make sure to watch your mailbox for a special gift from Focal Point. And if you want to add yourself to the list, just go to focalpointradio.org slash magnet. Well, that's all we have time for today. I'm Dave Drewy, and on behalf of Pastor Mike and the entire Focal Point team, I wish you and your family a very Merry Christmas. We'll see you next time on Focal Point. program was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries.